Jesus says, and we pick it up in verse 31. So this is Matthew 25, 31. Go ahead and get there. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. Matthew 25. Here, I'll help you. Okay, let's do this. Ready? No, it's okay. Yeah, I can see why. It's so small. Look at that. All right. We'll be right with you. There we go, Matthew 25. Okay. You're welcome. All right, Matthew 25, verse 31. <clears throat> when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory and all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd separates or divides his sheep from the goats. <coughs> Excuse me. And he will set the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left. The king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. And I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of these, of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Then he will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from you, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not take me in. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer him saying, Lord... When did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Will you pray with me, please? Lord, we know that you have a message for each of us right now. A message to speak to us, to draw us in, to, to, to train us, equip us, to challenge us, Lord, and to jar us loose from the manacles, Lord, that could so easily enslave us at a moment like this. We know, Lord, it's the season to be jolly and the season to be full of avarice and greed and Lunacy seems to run deep, Lord, through the streets as people go and grab their presents and wish for their things. And, and all of this in somehow under the guise of goodwill. 
And then in all of this, Lord, there are people desperate right now for the greatest gift, whether they know it or not, the gift of life that only you can give. So, Lord, by this text, even right now, challenge us to do that which you call us to in this text and let us get it. Don't let us be diverted or distracted from what it is you want to say here in this time. And I pray you would do perfect work now, please. Please have your way. Please let us know you better, understand you, even now. Pour your Spirit upon me, Lord, I pray, that you would do through me what I cannot humanly do. Empower me for the calling you've placed upon me. Lord, immerse me in your Spirit. Fill me to overflowing. And redeem every second. May we be captivated, drawn in, and have so much fun in your word now, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I would say today is that would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always be your authority. We now finish chapter 25, God willing, of Matthew. That puts everything together sort of like the pin in a Chinese puzzle. Have you ever seen one of those three-dimensional puzzles? There's always sort of one pin that holds the whole thing together, and when you pull it, the whole thing kind of falls apart. Well, in that same way, we kind of see that here. Of the 32 different references to the kingdom of heaven, this is the last one in the chapter, was the previous text we looked at just before this text in Matthew 25. Of all the sermons Jesus teaches in Matthew, there are seven, by the way, This is the last of them. And then after this, it'll return to the narrative and we'll see the fruition then of the vengeful closed-door scheming of the religious right that we've sort of seen kind of play their their part in here, right and left in that. Interesting, in his sermons, he started in chapters 5 through 7 with a sermon on a mount and was how to begin with Jesus, what it was like to be blessed. And he went from there to the Sermon of the Sending in 10 and the Sermon on John the Baptist in 11 and then the seven kingdom parables in 13. And from there he moved to a sermon on who was really the greatest in chapters 18 through 20. Then in 23, the woe sorrow, as Jesus uses the word hypocrite, more there than in the rest of the book or others. And then from there he takes us to this last sermon, chapters 24 and 25, on another mountain. The first one, just, if you will, just north of Capernaum. This one now, just east of Jerusalem, the Mount of Olives. By the way, the same place that Jesus, at least same mount range, where Jesus will be arrested, will sweat like drops of blood. All of that takes place on that same place, on that same hill. With that said, it's interesting that his first message started with how to begin with Jesus in Matthew 5-7. through His last message in chapters 24 and 25 are how to finish with Jesus. I think that's appropriate, don't you? Jesus has been comparing in this as he walks us through these end times and ultimately what kind of person we should be as a result. And he only breaks things up into two categories, good servants and bad servants. That's really the sort of the simple of it. It cul-de-sacs into what kind of servant we're going to be. And, and, and it turns out either we're going to be sort of true, faithful, dependable, and watchful servants on one side or unacceptably evil servants on the other. And then he proceeds to give us four examples. The first of them was in chapter 24 when he spoke about the watchful servant versus the evil servant. And what we find, and I do find this interesting, is that, again, it all sort of pulls into the driveway of this text today. He tells us in that particular parable that there was the watchful servant who was attentive. Like a Gregorian chant, Gregoria, where the Gregorio, and the word there means to be alert and attentive. And there were those servants that were excited and attentive to the Lord's return. And then there were the others. 
The others, by the way, who we find in the simplest sense were thumping the faithful in the clubs of the drunks. And what we find in the simplest sense is that the evil were really identified by the way that they treated the faithful, by the way they treated the sheep. The result in all of this then is that those that were faithful and watchful, well, they were made rulers over all of God's goods, the master's goods. On the other side, those that were unfaithful and evil, well, they were cast out, cut into, assigned a portion with the hypocrites where there was weeping and gnashing of teeth. And that's, of course, concerning because hypocrites, I remind you, just took us two chapters prior at Jesus' last sermon when he spoke about those that were sons of hell, in essence. Then he takes us to the second parable at the beginning of chapter 25, the parable of the foolish and wise virgins. Interesting, the wise were watchful and ready again, as we would see with the previous. And then we saw those that were foolish. The foolish, by the way, were known for their lack of watchfulness and their lack of readiness. And in essence, as a result of that, negligence to the bride and to the groom. And what you could see is how they were unfaithful in their service to the master by being unfaithful in their service to the bride, which relates again to the sheep. So the result, those that were the wise were again invited into the feasting of the wedding party, but those that were not and foolish, they were left out with the response in the simplest sense, Jesus saying, have we met? The results always seem to be the same. There's either an invitation in or a casting out. Then Jesus took us to the third of the four parables. That's what we looked at last week. The parable of the faithful versus the lazy servant. Each of the three servants were given in a simplest sense an extravagant amount of money. Two of them invested, and then from their investment it brought dividend. It's important to recognize every person who invested bore fruit. And it didn't matter how much it seemed that they bore because they were only giving according to their ability. But every person who invested received the same response from the master. Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many. Enter into the joy of your Lord. And again, the faithful were known again as those that entered in. On the other side of it, there was this other servant who instead of investing, dug a hole in the ground and buried it. Much, which takes me back all the way to Matthew 13, where he told us those seven parables. And one was about a jewel, a treasure that was buried in a field, which we knew to be us. And I find interesting here, again, buried in the field, for which he calls him wicked and lazy. And he is cast out, again, into the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. In all three of the parables, there was a day of reckoning, a day of accounting. And in that day of accounting, there was a separation between the wicked and the, and the faithful. The faithful were invited in, the wicked were cast out. And now we see what that day of reckoning looks like in our last parable here as Jesus takes us in Matthew 15, I'm sorry, 25 verse 31 when he says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory. Now, like it or not, what Jesus is playing out is more than simply a parable. What Jesus is playing out in the simplest sense is he's rolling, if you will, a trailer for the coming attractions. This is going to happen. And when this is going to happen, we need to recognize there are just like this, as he puts all things together, this day of reckoning, in its simplest sense, is quite simple. There are only two places that you're going to be, either at his left hand or at his right hand. There are only two groups, the sheep and the goats. There are only two destinies, the place prepared for people, the righteous, and the place that was prepared for Satan and his angels. And there is only one judge, the Son of Man, who at least twice is called king in this text. And when the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, 
He will sit on the throne of his glory and the nations will be gathered to him. It is important to recognize there is no people group nor person that will escape this judgment. They will stand before him. Now, the word nations is a simple word. It's the word ethnos. We get ethnic and ethnicity from it. It means all the different people and races of the world. The Portuguese will be there. The African will be there. The American, the British will be there. The Iranian will be there. The Italian will be there. It really doesn't matter where you've come from. The Filipino will be there. We will all stand before God. But it's important to note that though the nations will be gathered, notice what it says in verse 32. It says that he will separate them one from another. Not one nation from another. Not one ethnicity from another. But one person from another. Even though you may be gathered to whatever group you could possibly be gathered to, which, by the way, will include the Jew, regardless of where we start off, we will be judged individually. It will never be that we'll be able to ride on the coattails of the merit of anybody else, me included. And what he tells us here, then, is he's going to separate them as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. That's verse 32. So then we have to ask ourselves, How does and why does a shepherd separate his sheep from the goats? I mean, that's kind of an important question, don't you think? Now, ultimately, the key point in all of this is, is you really want to be a sheep and you really don't want to be a goat. But I've had a privilege of being able to spend some time with shepherds, often in Israel for that matter, and sit and get to meet. I got to know them well enough that on our last trip, a kid came by, and we're talking about somebody maybe 9, 10 years old, 11 years old, if you remember. And his sheep came, and the sheep came over to me. Now, you're probably aware of the fact sheep flee from strangers. And it was such a weird thing for me because I didn't even know who this child was. But I knew his parents because I had a chance to sit down. And some of the information I'll give you now comes from this kid's parents. But what's interesting is because the parents had been raising children with flocklings, if you will, these, these little lambs. These little lambs were actually there sitting, and while, while I was there with this boy's parents, they were there in audience of the whole thing, but apparently our conversation was enough that the sheep recognized my voice, even though I hadn't been there for several years. I thought that was interesting. And now here comes the son who comes in with the sheep, and the sheep come head over to me. I don't even know the son. And I would ask, I remember asking his parents, well, tell me about sheep and goats. What kind of personalities do they have as a shepherd? Do you separate them and why would you separate them? And this is what he told me. And then I was able to sit with other guys because they often congregate, these shepherds. And it was kind of a fun thing. It was sort of like it would have been a cool night to see a star in the east, you know, because there we all were with shepherds and, and me, a shepherd of people, if you will. And this is what they basically told me. Sheep are basically four things. They're timid, they're followers, they're dependent, and they're gregarious. That means they like to travel in groups. Goats, on the other hand, are aggressive, wanderers, independent, and self-willed. So what happens when you put a timid sheep with an aggressive goat? The sheep get bullied and intimidated. And so you can't have that. Because a bullied sheep doesn't eat. And a bullied sheep that doesn't eat gets sick and dies. And a bullied sheep that doesn't eat never replicates. When you take a following sheep and put it with a wandering goat, the wandering goat will lead the sheep astray by the strength of their personality alone. They will interfere with the voice of the shepherd. When you take a dependent sheep and put it with an independent goat, it will confuse the sheep because the goat will speak over the shepherd and the goat will feel, will be left, I'm sorry, the, the sheep will be left feeling insecure because they lose confidence in who their shepherd is because there are others that are trying to act in its place. 
and you take gregarious sheep that like to travel as a group, and you put them with a self-willed independent goat, what you find is that the sheep, and this I found really interesting, begin to loathe each other. They actually look at each other and hate each other instead of love each other. And often, when a, when a shepherd comes into a group of sheep and he finds them actually with no willingness, if you will, to, be, to travel as a group, the first conclusion of a shepherd is that there must be a goat amongst the midst of them because that goat was influencing them to the point where they would start to be more self-willed than they would be corporate thinking. So why would a, sh- a shepherd separate them? For the safety of the sheep. They wouldn't be bullied and intimidated anymore. But that they, rather, that they would be safe. That they wouldn't be led astray. But rather, that they would be led in and be able to know and recognize and feel safe at the sound of their shepherd. Well, he separates them. And what we read in verse 33 is he separates them by the right hand and his left hand. Now, I remind you, in this text... This son of man is sitting on the throne of his glory. And then we read in verse 34, the king. And in verse 40, the king. This king who sits on his throne. And then I get the image here of a king sitting on a throne and there's a left hand and a right hand. Now that's important. This isn't just a guy sitting down. It doesn't even mention it here as a shepherd for the moment. As the shepherd separates his sheep, so I get the idea there. But when a king sits on his throne, there are very distinct and organized, if you will, dedicated positions to his left and right hand. The right hand man, of course, is the guy who gets the job done. That's the guy you send on the mission, and he stands until the job is done, and when he's done, he's able to sit. We know that when Jesus finished paying for our sins, he sat down at the right hand of glory. When the Father sat on the throne, Jesus could sit beside him as the one who executed his will. But the person on your left was your recorder, your scribe, the person who wrote your history and therefore was often your counselor. Often what you find is, is that a king, when he was too young to rule, would put his mother beside him to his left for counsel. In a situation like this, I can't help but see that image as we see him separate the sheep and the goats. Because on one side, there are those taking counsel and direction from the master, from the king. Those are those on his right hand. And there are those who are tossing their will and counsel at the king from their left, who happen to be the goats, which sounds very much like my understanding of sheep and goats in the first place. The goats would be the ones to tell you where they're going, and the sheep would be the ones that wait to find out where you want them to go. So the king separates them, and on verse 34 it tells us then, the king then says, He calls both of them different titles, sends them, of course, to two different places, and has a qualification that seems fairly similar for both. The sheep are called in verse 34, blessed of my father, and in verse 37, the righteous. The goats are called cursed in verse 41. The sheep are invited to come and inherit in verse 34. The goats are told to depart into everlasting fire in verse 41. That alone should tell you which place you want to be. But the king would say to those on his right hand, verse 34, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom. And this is how we know the father is not sitting on the throne making this declaration, but Jesus. He calls himself the son of man in verse 31. And here it's blessed of his father. And here he tells us that this blessed group, and I find that interesting because Jesus ends the parables or I should say, ends his sermon here, of his last sermon in Matthew, the same way that the first sermon began. Blessed are. And he looks and he says to the sheep, you're blessed. You are so blessed of my Father. Inherit the kingdom. 
that was prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Which tells me that this kingdom that God had prepared, He had prepared before He made you. Because it was when the world was being framed. And He had built it for you and wants you there. He gives us the qualification then in verses 35 through 36. Look, it says, I was hungry, thirsty, a stranger, naked, sick, or in prison. And they responded accordingly. Hungry, gave him food. Thirsty, they gave him drink. Stranger, they took him in. Naked, they clothed him. Sick, they visited him. In prison, they came to him. Now, if Jesus were to come in walking in right now and he had any of these needs, would you be quick to jump to his aid? Would you be quick to take him and, and go and get him a meal somewhere? Get him something to drink? Would you be quick to take him in? Because he would, would say, foxes have holes and the birds of air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Would you be in that place where you would take him in? If Jesus were unwell... Would you visit him? And obviously this wasn't, I mean, let's face it, this isn't the kind of thing where you're really unwell and the last thing you want is someone peeking in your room going, hey, wow, you really do look bad. But this is the kind of thing that you visit somebody who's sick for the purpose of tending to their need or in prison and coming to him. Now, I find it interesting. I remind you, this is the throne of glory. That's what we read here, which tells us that there are several thrones. The enemy may think he has his own throne, but I would say he sits on a throne of lies. But the throne that's here is a throne of glory, and we see Jesus for who he really is. And in seeing Jesus for who he really is, he is somebody that has no problem mincing words. And what he said was, in a simple sense, there were needs, and you tended to them for me. And the righteous, notice they're called righteous in verse 37, say, Lord, and they'll both call him Lord, by the way, both sheep and goats. Lord, when did we see you like this and answer it? which tells us that their behavior was one that they actually didn't show up to Jesus, stand before his throne, and assume they had a docket of information to throw Jesus. Let me tell you why you should let me into heaven. Look at all the great things I've done. They didn't go, hey, oh yeah, when I did that really cool thing for that guy, was that really you? What they find is, is they're in this place where they're like, wow, I don't recall any of what you're talking about. And when you do things out of love, you tend not to keep score. Have you noticed that? Well, with that in mind, if you consider that they ask, well, then when was it the case that these, were, these things were met in us? Hungry, thirsty, a stranger, naked, sick, prison? I, I, don't, I don't remember those things. But notice the answer, because the answer could be easily read quickly and not gathered the way it should. In verse 40, notice again it's the king. The king answers and he says to him, Assuredly, I say to you, in the Greek, if you will, amen, amen. Inasmuch as you did this, or did it, to the least of these, and then what does he say? Come on, you can tell me, what does it say? My brethren, don't miss those words. My brethren, you did it to me. This is the part we miss. Because we get the least part right away. Okay, find a person, let's say so, the person that's naked might be a least, or a hungry person might be a least, the person who's sick might be a least, <coughs> a person in prison might be a least. And the church can be known for doing things, but what Jesus doesn't say in this text is that when you did it to the world, 
He said, when you did it to the least of these, my brothers. So the real question is, who are Jesus' brothers? Are the, is every human being on the planet Jesus' brother? Not according to text. Scripture makes clear, for instance, it tells us in Matthew chapter 12, verse 50, Jesus had already said, whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother, sister and mother. When Jesus is raised from the dead in Matthew 28.10, He will say, Go to my brothers and tell them to go to Galilee. And if we're children, according to Romans 8.17, well, then we're joint heirs with Christ. And I find this interesting. So we have to start with this. Who in the world were we and how do we become these brothers? Well, it becomes really clear in this sense. We were born children of wrath. Ephesians 2 makes that clear. I believe it's Ephesians 2, 3. We were born children of Adam, according to Romans 7. We were not born children of the Father. There is a family out there, and that family is not the family of Jesus. It's not the only family on earth, because Jesus would call them the family of Satan, because he calls them a brood of vipers, as John the Baptist would. Think of what a brood is. A brood's a family. A brood's a batch of people. John would tell us, as he was in his 90s at the end of his ministry, we know who the children of the devil are versus the children of God. There's two clearly clear groups. So if I started out not being a child, or if you will, a brother of Jesus, I started out not being a child of the Heavenly Father, how do I get there? Well, Jesus told me I needed to be born again, that the old person had to die. But it goes beyond that because I actually get God's full endorsement. So when he told us that we must be born again in John 3.3, and we were told that we have to believe in him to do that, God takes us this step beyond that. And in Romans 8.15, it tells us we were adopted. The moment you said yes to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the Father adopted you as his own, and you became Jesus' brother. Now, ladies, are you thinking, is that se- well, that's sexist. Why can't I be a sister? Because I remind you, in, in, in Middle Eastern culture, often the girl is a temporary member of a family until she's married. And they know they'll have to let her go and she'll be part of another person's family to actually help carry on that family name, not their own. But a boy, a son, he's a son forever. There will be, if you know, Deborah's brothers will always be Zingales. No matter what they do, they'll be Zingales. Did I say that right? Was that pretty close? Yeah, cozy, cozy. Deborah, on the other hand, that could be debatable. And it's even more fun if you ask her about it. Suzanne comes from a long line of Crockers. That's her maiden name. Like Betty Crocker, and that's probably why she's such a great baker. However, she's a holiday now. She married well. Now, I think she's probably thankful my surname isn't like Dingledorf or something, but not to make fun of someone if that is their surname. The point is, is that she has brothers as well. And those brothers will always have the surname Crocker. They'll always be considered a member of the family. Now, in Western culture, you're still always considered a part of the family. But the fact that we're all Christ's brothers means you're never going to get married off into another family. You belong part of this family forever. Welcome to the family. And the reason I say this is when Jesus says... When you've done this to the least of these, my brothers, I'd like this to actually punch you in the head, if you will, like it did me, as I start to consider what it really means to represent Jesus properly and where to really genuinely place my love first. 
Now, Jesus did not tell us to not love the world. Well, he did tell us don't love the things of the world and not to love the world's system. Matter of fact, James would say, you really want to love that. You actually can't be a friend of God and do that. But he says, when it comes to the love you have, the first place it really needs to be dumped is in with Christians. And don't just believe me. Let me throw out some text to give you an idea. When Jesus told us about being his disciples in John 13, 35, he said, you know how the world will even know you're my students? By the love you have for one another. Not for the world, but the love you have for one another. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, it tells us, Therefore, as we, have, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those of the household of faith. That's where it should be first. And it's like, wait a minute, are you telling, Pastor Tony, are you telling me that I should play favorites? And I'm saying, yes, yeah, 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 you should. But to be honest, that's how family works. My family has a favored status in my heart. They, shouldn't they? Those that bear my surname have a favored status. And they get first pick. Now, I get a big juicy steak, unless it's a place that keeps serving them like a Brazilian barbecue. I get a big juicy steak, and I start cutting it up, and you stick your fork onto my plate, you might get another fork back at you. But my daughter does it all the time without any argument. It just seems to be part of our relationship. She's like, love is sharing. I'm like, well, when are you going to start? Anyway, you get the idea. But I'd like you to consider what he's telling us. Now, let me say it this way. Consider yourself an orphan for a moment. Say you're eight years old, and there's a family that comes with the potential of adopting you, and you can be cautious, and you should be cautious. How are you going to observe, and what are you going to observe to be confident in their adoption that you'd really want them to be your family? How they treat you, or how they treat each other? Because how they treat you is hard to be objective, let's be honest. They're going to probably put on their best face anyways because they're going to try to get you. So as a result of that, you can imagine that they're probably going to try to do whatever they can to kind of woo you into them. But I would be wise to watch how they treat each other because as I can observe how they treat each other, I'd say this is how the family seems to work. Do I want to be a part of that? And if they're yelling and screaming at each other, no matter how nice they are to me, if they're yelling and screaming and shooting at each other, I know that if I get adopted, I'm going to go into that household. Is that what I really want? And some person who doesn't know Jesus steps into a building like this and watches how we treat each other. And what are they going to see? We tell them we're different. We tell them we're holy, which just means set apart and weird as far as the world is concerned. And they start to watch how we deal with each other, how we treat each other. Do we look any different than the way the world treats each other? And you'd say, well, you don't understand, Pastor Tony. I've been hurt. Christians have really hurt me, and I can say they probably have. Have your family members ever hurt you, but you still know that you're still your, they're still your family members? Part of what we have to learn is how to forgive. Now, look at When someone's a danger, I'm not telling you open yourself up for them to hurt you, but what I am saying is we have to learn how to love each other the way that God called us to. As a matter of fact, it becomes the benchmark for the, for the to be honest, for what convinces Paul over what a decent church is. For instance, listen to these verses as Paul writes to the churches. Ephesians 1.13. And he always seems to say, I thank God because of this. When I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. Colossians 1.14. Since I heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints. To Philemon, he says in 1.5. Hearing of your love and faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. 
In Thessalonians, when you write 2 Thessalonians 1.3, we are bound to thank God for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly, and the love that everyone has, every one of you has towards each other abounds. Peter says in 1 Peter 1.22, to all those he's sending out under his tutelage, since we've heard, since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, <coughs> excuse me, in sincere love of the brethren. In all of these different churches, it's like if Paul were to check and see how the church was doing, he would go, are they loving each other? Well, <coughs> excuse me, how would that look? How would it look if we loved each other? What's interesting is the one church that Paul never seems to really single out for that purpose is the church of Corinth. And it's the one church that Paul calls carnal, led by the flesh, not by the spirit. And Paul, in that, by the way, has great concern. He doesn't speak well of the church of Galatia in that either, but it's the one church he even doubts whether they're even saved. Now, let me ask you something. What Jesus says is, when you did this to them, you did it to me. It seems to me that the real litmus test that separates the sheep from the goats is simply this. What did you do with Jesus? And what did you do with his family? If you're really nice to me, but you're really nasty to my family, don't expect an invitation into my house. That only makes sense. And Jesus looks and he goes, don't give me lip service and then hate each other. John would say in 1 John, how could we say that we love God whom we have not seen and not love each other whom we have? So what would it look like to, to practically love each other? Is it just being warm and huggy and fuzzy and, and just being nice and smiling? Well, according to this, he says, this is what real love looks like. It looks like how we treat the hungry. Believer. How we treat the thirsty. Believer. How we treat the stranger. Believer. How we treat those that are poorly clothed. That are believers. How we treat the sick. That are believers. How we treat those that are imprisoned but believers. Did you notice it doesn't say in prison unrighteously? What if a person is a Christian but did something really stupid? Would you still visit them in prison? Would you say, well, now they've done, they've done that, you know. They're getting their just rewards. We've had several occasions where we've reached out to someone, saw them come to know the Lord, but the crime they committed was even before coming to Jesus. And they still wound up doing time. And there's a great opportunity for a prison ministry when that kind of thing happens. So let me ask you, when was the last time you made a special note, I'm going to seek to love Christians? Has it ever happened? Has it ever even occurred? Do you realize this is one of the reasons why church is so important? Why assembling is so important? Because it gives us an opportunity to see who at least claims to be Christian. You're not going to find a group out there normally running the streets. And if you, you do, sometimes you might be want to be really wary of them. And Jesus looks and he goes, you know, the bottom line is, what did you do with me? And what have you done with my family? The church should never be in a place of great need. Now, let's be honest. 2,000 years ago in the Middle East, to be honest, in much places like where Layla came from, when a person says yes to Jesus, they could lose everything. 
It's not just like their friends will abandon them. They could lose everything. They could kicked out of their house. They could not get a job in their community. They could be a wanted man and want to be hated, you know, hunted down. They could be all of their possessions could be uh, completely confiscated. Now, in a situation like that, that person has nowhere to go. And if he cannot find respite, respite with other Christians, he's not going to find it anywhere at that point. I mean, let's face it, that's quite dramatic, but it's still very serious. That still happens in China. That still happens in the Middle East. That still happens in places in Africa. But let's be honest, in a much milder way, that happens everywhere. So case in point, Bruno's got a couple friends. And these friends, let's say, they kind of have a crew of guys and they all hang out. They play football together. You know, they go out and have a couple beers at the, you know, at the pub or whatever. They do what, you know, whatever boys do kind of thing. And then somewhere down the line in it, one of those guys gives his life to Christ full on. And all he wants to talk about is Jesus now. And he's super excited about it. Next thing you know, all of the guys kind of meet and say, you know, we'd rather you not play football with us anymore because you're really kind of bothering us. And certainly you're not going to want to go to the pub because look at what we're doing. You know, and all of a sudden he kind of loses. And, I, and all he knows in that particular stage is everything he's lost. You can imagine how lonely that could seem. Because all he knows is the, all the stuff he's familiar with, he's not invited into anymore. And there's a part of him that doesn't want to go anyways, but he doesn't even know where to go from there. Enter Bruno into the situation and say, you know, why don't you come with me? And you can meet other people who actually feel like you do. Do you remember the first time you came to a church and you just, it just felt so good to be able to breathe again? You know, you walk out there and just saying the name of Jesus, you have to overcome something inside of you just because, you know, every person around you is going to freak out to some degree. And there's something you have to just overcome and go, you know what, no, I'm just going to say it. And people go, hey, so why are you guys happily married after 27 years? And I go, Jesus, because I don't want to even get around to getting there. I just have to jump over it and go right for the kill. And my wife always kind of goes, and then she kind of helps try to pad the answer. But, the, but it's like it's still the truth. But it's like you kind of know that no matter where you are, you're kind of fighting a current. Is there some place you can go where you don't feel like you're fighting the current anymore? Where you just go and go, you know what? It's just so nice to be among other people who just love God and actually believe his word. Because you can even go in circles that are called Christian and they can berate you on your simple belief of Scripture and in the end of it all, what you've got are people that are constantly kind of going, no, 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 I know that what that says, but I'm a greater expert than what? The scripture that God wrote? So you have the wisdom on how to pick and choose what you think should work and what doesn't? Try that with God and see how that works. So what about the person? What about the person who actually really went, started a group, went out and has been feeding the poor somewhere in the world, but not really in the name of Jesus, but they're being nice? And they've been real benevolent about it. And they're clothing the, you know, the people that are poorly clothed and they're helping give houses to the homeless. And, they, and somewhere in all of this, they could tell you they're a Christian when they're, when they're with somebody else that's a Christian. But they hate Christians. Oh, they hate them. They're all hypocrites, which is funny because all would have to include him then, right? And they see a person that's in church and they're like, oh, like that person really needs anything. Where would they fit into this? And they've come up with the most brilliant dance. 
and the most brilliant execution of a song or whatever, and they've learned how to, to hone and craft their talents in ways that they can bury them deep in the world, but they really aren't investing in them eternally. And in somehow in all of that, there they are, and they're well-loved, and they're well-respected, and the world applauds them because they seem so benevolent and so kind and all of this. And in any of that, they have that opportunity, and they stand in front of thousands of people because of their kindness, but never in any sense really ever bring this to the God, to the God that actually bought them. And then somewhere in all of this, they're going to stand before God. Do you really think God's going to look at that point and go, well, you were, you were nice. Let's let you in because you were nice. There's a lot of people that appear to be really nice I wouldn't invite into my house either. To be honest, first of all, because I don't know them. But I guarantee you, somebody, no matter how nice they appear, if they have a problem with my family, they're not going to get invited in because I choose my family over them. And Jesus does too. And when the king sits on his throne, he's going to look at a group of people and he's going to see people that have been so caught up in social action today. I mean, it's like, we want to make sure that every injustice is righted. And we're going to go and we're going to carry our signs, and we're going to eat vegan, and we're going to make sure we grow our beards out, the guys too, and we're going to make sure that, that we don't wash our clothes unless we have to, and we're going to wear hemp, and we're going to do whatever, and in the end of it all, we're going to make sure nothing dies, we're only going to eat vegetables. Think that one through. And then, you know, some vegetables die when you eat them. Anyways, with all of that, you know, we're just, we're going we're gonna to go out and we're going to make sure that every life matters and we're going to make sure that everyone has a right to do whatever they want to do and we're going to make sure everyone can smoke pot if they want to smoke pot and we're going to make sure that everyone gets fair pay, you know, fair pay no matter where they are and we're going to make sure, but, but, but they're calling themselves Christians and this is the entirety of their Christianity. How do you think that looks before God? And they've waxed eloquent. And they've quoted C.S. Lewis because it's pretentious and it makes them sound brilliant. And they have groups on these things. Do you really think that that's what God's looking for? And then somewhere down the line, there's a group that we, get, we want to get super esoteric and we want to light our candles and we want to get our feelings and we're going to, we're going to cover the place in patchouli oil so we can smell something and we're going to make sure we have a, a shake and a wiggle and a scream and a howl and we're going to do laughs and we're going to get this whole thing and this is our entire, and this is the sum of our Christianity. How do you think God sees that? Now, I'm not telling you you can't go out and do something that, that affects the society around you. It should impact, but it's got to start with Jesus. And I'm not telling you you can't have an experience, but it's got to start with Jesus, and it should end with Jesus. But what we find is, in Scripture, when the Holy Spirit is moving, when the Spirit of God is moving and moves us to love one another and then share the gospel with the lost. Let me say that again. It moves us to love one another and share the gospel with the lost. It's that simple. The moment we start going on, what we kind of do is we, we, we love the, those that are lost and we just kind of maybe share the gospel with each other. We've got to call it totally backwards. We're giving medicine to the well and we're befriending the dying instead of actually giving them their medicine. And Jesus looks and he goes, you need to know that in the end it's not going to be about how much social justice you did. It's not going to be about what groups you started and how organic they were and how grassroots they were from the beginning and how cool it was for everybody to make sure that we all wore flannels and we sat around in a circle. And none of those things are bad in and of themselves, but they're just not going to be the thing God grades on. He's going to ask, what did you do with me and what did you do with my family? And if you're going to be one of those people, and the good news is I don't think any of us are these people, 
But if we're going to be one of those people that sort of a hate the church, church, where does that fit into this? You'd say, well, the bride's all messed up, but you're still part of it. Church is full of messed up people. Well, then actually be a part of the solution. But the Bible tells us Jesus is, there's only two places to go, and it's either sheep or goats. But let me remind you, just to make clear, the sheep are timid, meek, they follow the shepherd, they're dependent on the shepherd, and they actually travel in groups. But the goats are aggressive, self-willed, independent, and given to wandering. And in the end, we can do so many things that the world will applaud, and it's so goatish that we could actually think we're doing great things for God. And then have God still put us on the side of the goats and us go, how does that work? Is that really what we want to do? Because I don't want to be goatish like this and do all of these things. You know, Jesus told us there are those that think that killing you is actually serving God. That tells you how wacky you can get on this to the place where you're convinced that what you've done is completely God's will. What you've really done is hurt everyone else. So what would it be like to love each other? Could it be starting with this? God, open my eyes to needs that you have specifically ordained for me to be a part of filling. Maybe that's a lonely person that just simply needs a person to pray with. You may not feel equipped for a lot of things, but I know some of you, you can bake like amazing. Some of you, you're good listeners. Some of you are just darn funny. Some of you have fantastic gifts in lots of areas. But could you imagine what it would be like if the church really functioned like the body Christ ordained? Do you know what would happen? If somebody had a computer problem, somebody here with brilliance in computers would actually help them. And by the way, I'm only saying that hypothetically because I don't know that situation to have occurred. In other words, I'm not trying to point out anyone. Or if somebody was lonely or they could just use a card or a visit or a pie, they could get it. Wouldn't it be great if somebody who didn't know the Lord came in and went, whatever you guys are about, I want to be about it because the way you treat each other is just so right. Jesus, that's what the world's going to know. And Paul looks and he goes, this is what I notice in your churches. And I want you to know, every time I even think about that, all I can do is thank God. And what would happen if Paul went around London and he visited the churches? Would he notice that? He doesn't say, wow, I noticed you've got the most amazing worship service. I've noticed you've got the most amazing teachers. I've noticed you've got the most beautiful facilities and the laser light show was unparalleled. I haven't seen anything like that since the O2. I noticed that you guys really have a lot of experiences there and it's so amazing. You cluck and bark and get teeth filled with gold. But the real question is, what are we really doing with Jesus? And what are we really doing with his family? Well, this is how it goes as we bring this to close. The righteous, notice again, are really kind of amazed that Jesus would even point this out because they really don't see this. But unfortunately, that's not the whole story. There's still the future of the goats. 
Verse 40, the king will answer and he say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to the least of these, my brother, you did it unto me. Then he will say to those on the left hand. And I remind you, that would be the place where you would give counsel versus submit. Depart from me, you cursed. I would never want Jesus to call me that. I was born cursed. We were all born cursed. Into everlasting, into the everlasting fire. The tells me it's a specific place. It's not just arbitrarily, in, you know, eternal fire. There's a specific place. And if I put all of these, these stories from um, Matthew 24 and 25 together, what I get is a place of, of unparalleled darkness and a place of eternal flames. Now, how do those two fit together? I don't know, but I can guarantee you this. I don't want anything to do with it. But in every one of these parables, in every one of these situations, there has been either a come or a go. And you want to be part of the come. Come and enter into the joy of your Lord. Come, I will make you ruler over many things. Come to the place prepared before you, the kingdom prepared before the foundation or at the foundation of the world. And he says here then in verse 41, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. I want you to notice something, and please don't miss this. In verse 41, God never built hell for people. It was never built for them. It tells me who God built hell for in verse 41. It was prepared for the devil and his angels. That's who it was prepared for. God does not want you going there so much so that he'd say, you want to go there over my dead body and then you try to step over and he'll rise while you are. He wants to make really clear, you are not going to go there except by your choice, not his. The separation at this point is just clear for, for the protection of the sheep. And he goes, the place I'm sending you is not the place I wanted you to go. The place I'm sending you, the place I'm sending you is the place you chose to go. I'm just following suit with that choice. I was hungry, thirsty, stranger, naked, sick, same group of people. You had no interest in meeting any of these things. And of course, they're going to say in verse 44, Lord, Lord. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? Considering the fact that both groups call him Lord. But Jesus said, not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And he says, well, when did we see you any of these things and not really serve you? But look at verse 45. He will answer and say, assuredly, I say to you, Inasmuch as you did not do this to the least of these. Who are the these he's speaking of here? Well, in the room, Jesus is sitting with his holy angels. There's the sheep and the goats. The these has to not be their group, so it can't be the goats. So who's left? It's the sheep. So imagine, and I'll stand over here just so that you can all be on my right hand for a moment. Imagine, if you will, at this moment, Jesus is looking, the sheep are at his right hand, and he's going, I've got a kingdom I've been preparing for you, and I want you to come and enjoy that place now. And then he looks at the sheep, I'm sorry, he looks at the goats, and he goes, the hungry? When did you not do that? Look over there. Were they hungry? Were they thirsty? Were they naked, in need, homeless, strangers, sick and in prison? Did you, did you know that? When did you skip that? And I wonder how many of them, it isn't that they didn't do it, it's just they didn't do it to these. They did it for another purpose. Hey, you can be kind for very selfish purposes. We know that. And just doing stuff because it looks good 
doesn't work on the CV of eternity when God looks and He says, this is where it happens first. Judgment begins at the house of God, but also so does kindness. And he goes, this is where love should be. And this is where love should abound. And he looks and he goes, you know, if you had really, instead of been busy being up, you know, putting up your banners and talking about how smart you are, how much smarter you are than the average Christian or whatever, and you want to bag on that. How about if we loved each other? Now, if the Lord shows you something, man, share it. But what you're going to find is everything the Lord leads us will ultimately lead us to love one another as we should. And you have those groups, they're like, I hate the church. I'm too smart for the church. Because they're just a bunch of idiots. Anyways, and I wonder how many of those things God would have on film and go, really? You want to be part of this group? Because according to everything you've said up to this point, you didn't want to be a part of this group. You've been leading people away like a, she- like a goat would to the sheep. Lord, when did we see this? And he goes, when you didn't do it to the least of these. Now, the least, by the way, here doesn't mean the person with the greatest need. It actually means when you didn't even do it to the littlest need. Now, we're not talking about something where it's like somebody needed something you were incapable of giving. It's like you just didn't even show interest for the littlest need that you really could have met. That's the idea of a least here. Can you hear Christ's heart at verse 46 when he says, and these will go away to everlasting punishment? Because I hear the broken heart of Christ saying, man, this is not where you were supposed to go. This is not where I wanted you to go. But the righteous will enter into eternal life. So in the end of it all, let me ask you again, what are we doing with Jesus? And what are we doing with his people? I'm not asking what are we doing with, his, with the world first. According to this, what are we doing with Jesus? And what are we doing with, with his people? And as we go to prayer on this day, you know, you're going to have the opportunity over the next week and a half for many of you to spend time with a lot of family. See how you treat each other. And you know, there are times where you're like, no, this is really family. The first family I ever really, really knew was church. It was the first family. It was before I had my own. And it's still been my favorite, including my family, that I have that's biological. Of all the groups and clubs that I've ever been a part of, there's nothing like this. We've been bought by the blood of Christ and we all should be in hell. We all should be goats. But for the love of Christ, we'd all be goats and Jesus died on the cross. And we've been blood-bought. We've been redeemed. We've been spirit-filled. We've been adopted. We've been cleansed. We've been made new and continually made new. And we just need to start acting like it. Will you pray with me? God, I want to thank you so much for this beautiful text. And Lord, I do pray that I know, Lord, that there's so many out there that That the attitude is them, these, and not us. And Lord, I do pray for every one of us, myself included, that you teach us how to love.
Teach us how to love God, you, with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and then our neighbor is ourself. And I get that the neighbor is the person next to us in the pew. Now, we are to do good to all people, but especially the household of faith. And I pray, Lord, that your assessment of our fellowship would be one. Say that you are constantly brought to the thankfulness because of the lo- excuse me, Lord, because of the love that we have for all the saints. So make us people who love like we should. And where we see, Lord, the hungry and the thirsty. Lord, give us the willingness, Lord. And even if that's just somebody who's having a rough month, Lord, and they could just use some groceries, or whether it's just someone who's having a rough day and they could just use a meal, show us the practical ways to love each other. For the strangers, Lord, that are out there, that know you, show us how to help take them in. For those, Lord, that are incarcerated, Lord, and need enforcing, reinforcing of your word, Lord, lead us as we could be so led by you to make a difference. For those, Lord, poorly clothed, Lord, not because it's their fashion, but because they just can't afford to do anything else, give us wisdom on how to help them. For those, Lord, who are ill and need so much more than a quick text, help us to go that extra mile and treat them like family like we should. And we recognize the only reason we're family is because you sent Jesus to die on the cross. Thank you for that. And as he died on the cross and rose again, we have the privilege today of being brothers together, of being family Thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross for us that all of our sin could be paid for, but also thank you for raising again to give us a new life and a new family. Father, thank you for adopting us as your own, for wanting us. Now let us live like it, I pray. This Christmas season, make us the kind of people who would be known by our love for one another. Teach us to love the fellowship as you would call us to. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.